Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, COVID cases in Ontario top 300 for the first time since June. Are we experiencing a second wave? Schools are starting up. Universities are back, even if online. Some are still in residence. Can we predict more cases? And lots of chatter post-COVID-19 about a basic income. Is it the answer? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Today is my first full week of grade 8 during a global pandemic. Us kids have our masks on, hands washed, and social distancing. We'll be fine. Don't worry. This next greatest generation will get you old people through this. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Hey, who's he calling old? Where is he? I'm going to get my hands on that guy. He's nowhere around. He's in class. Did that before he left. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Uh, thanks for being here. Much appreciated. Those of you that have your power back on, it's good It's good to have you with us. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there talking about, uh, which really is the first day back for a lot of kids. I mean, scheduled to start last week. Uh, some had some orientation, um, you, you know, just to get used to it and such. But uh, this is certainly the full, uh, first full week back for uh, lots of kids and uh, as well university students uh, are back and we're seeing the numbers uh, climb a, a bit again uh, and, and some are very well everyone is very concerned about this 313 new cases uh, in Ontario that is the largest single increase since uh, back in June 204 yesterday and 313 confirmed uh, uh, as of today uh, is a second wave. Everyone's talking about a second wave. I have a feeling this is what we're experiencing right now. All right, so I want to play some clips here. This is uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott this morning talking about the sudden surge in cases we have seen in Ontario in the last little while. The progress that we've made so far has only been possible because Ontarians have demonstrated incredible resolve. But we can't stop there, especially as our students are returning to school and to post-secondary institutions. That's why we've taken a pause of four weeks or two incubation periods before considering any further loosening of public health measures or any further openings of businesses to make sure that we can help avoid returning to broad-scale shutdowns and returning back to stage two. No one wants to have to do that. It remains critical that everyone continues to act on the public health measures that we've been emphasizing for many months. This includes everyday measures like proper hand hygiene, social distancing, and of course, wearing a mask in situations where that's not possible. These actions will help to keep everyone safe so that we can, after this four-week period is over, hopefully be able to start loosening our restrictions once again. 
That is uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott talking this morning about uh, the spike we are seeing in cases in Ontario. Reported today, th- uh, 313 new cases. That is the largest single increase since June. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Anna Banerjee, uh, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So is this, everybody's been talking about the second wave, Doctor. Is this the second wave that we're experiencing now? It's really hard to know, but it is concerning, and I, and I think that this could be the beginning of uh, another wave, yes. So uh, obviously this is the biggest single-day increase since June. Uh, we've started to see these numbers uh, slowly tick up over the last couple of weeks since uh, reopening Stage 3 and such. Uh, I, I guess that uh, some uptick was expected. Did you expect to be where we are? How, how do you I, keep this in perspective? Um, I think that I'm not surprised. Um, I think all you have to do is take a look at what's happening all around the rest of the world. Even places that had the virus somewhat under control are seeing um, resurgence or, or new uh, pockets of outbreaks, uh, you know, everywhere. So, so, and the virus really is not... Um, under control in many other countries. Like, for example, the United States, we're still in the first wave. We're still seeing, you know, a thousand deaths a day due to COVID. So this is a highly infectious uh, virus that, um, you know, I think it, it's, there, are some, there are many challenges to this virus. I think one of the, the, the big challenge is that, um, it's, well, first of all, it's very, very infectious, about 50 times more infectious than influenza. The testing is not great. Uh, I would say, depending on the day that, that someone's tested, it can be falsely negative 30% of the time. So you have people that have COVID that have a negative test that are continuing to go out in the community and spread the COVID, plus you have asymptomatic carriers. So people that uh, have COVID have no symptoms. And so these two groups, it's really hard to contain it. And as we go, as a, the season's getting colder, people are spending more time indoors, um, you know, so that increases the risk of spread as well. You have things that have opened up, um, that like bars and movie theaters, and uh, which again is a potential venue for for the transmission. So I'm not surprised. We are seeing that uh, I guess it's 67 percent of these new cases are people who are under 40 years of age. Obviously, young adults seems seems to be the greatest segment, uh, greatest segment of the demographic uh, of the population rather that is showing signs of of positive tests and such. How concerned are you with universities going back this week, uh, especially with the spike in young adults? Uh, so many universities are doing. Um their education online, so that is not as concerning. But many people, even though they're doing online education, they're going, they're living in residence, so in dorms and that. Yeah. So there could be outbreaks in the dorms. Um, so it depends on, you know, where people are at, if they're having in-person classes versus, uh, uh, you know, at-home classes. So there's a lot of, there's risk there. But when you have a group of people, again, in a, a small, smallish space, then that's that's a rich medium for the virus to spread. Um, as well, we've got schools going back, and you know while we're like for example in Ontario, we're saying you know yeah, do the physical distancing, hand hygiene, wear the mask, and all that, and it seems to be 
you know, the exception is at schools. And I think many schools have tried to do their best to keep kids separate, but there seems to be this exceptionalism that we have in schools, and it seems there seems to be more uh, effort putting into fighting, for example, the teachers' unions um, about the physical distancing and the spacing, and I think that's a lost opportunity. When the class sizes were small, smaller because more kids, have, uh, parents, families have chosen to stay at home, then you would have had the spacing needed. But instead of keeping the spacing, they've combined classes, and so you still have classes where you can't really physical distance. Uh, do you think we can physically distance anymore with keeping kids in class uh, five days a week? I mean, we've, ha- we've had this discussion over the last several weeks, as you said, with uh, the teachers' unions and the government of the day uh, battling it out again, just as they were before COVID-19, over this exact same issue. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, from what I'm hearing, unless we start building schools left, right, and center, there's no way we can possibly keep every single class at 15 unless we alternate days, which means the kids aren't going to school every day. Yeah, I, I think it's challenging. I think all of it's challenging. This is all new for us. We've never experienced this before. And, uh, so really, in a sense, doctor, you know, I, I guess my point is, is, is we're hearing a lot of people saying we should be doing this, we should be doing that, when really we can't. We're doing the best we can. There really other, there isn't an option here that we're not using, is there? Well, I don't know. Like, I think that um, if there are less kids going to school, then, and there's more online, then there should be the capacity to physically distance the kids, right? And it's not the a limit of 15, it's the number of kids for the size of the room. So if it's a smaller room or a bigger yeah. room, then, you know, the proportionate number of kids, so you can actually space them out. Now, will kids, uh, teenagers, young kids, really physically distance? Will, will they just say, oh, you know, we can die anyway and hang out with whoever they want to hang with? It's That's really, that's something that is hard to control, that kind of behavior with the younger and maybe older kids. Um but but are we looking at the things where you know are all schools having one way traffic? Are they are they looking at um, you know are there other places like is there an auditorium that's not being used? Is there another uh, recreational center that's not being used? Like you know are we doing the best we can? I don't know. I'm not in the schools, but from what I hear, you know when you're combining classes again, um, that may not be the best thing to do in the time of COVID. So if it spreads and there are outbreaks in school, will I be surprised? No. So, because I think that there is more that could be done. Just by spacing spacing the kids out. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, what I see here is the real option is, and, and let's be honest, because it's a no-win situation. But if you're going to take kids down into smaller class sizes, into 15 or whatever you said with the size of the room and such, again, you're going to have to alternate days with kids learning online one day. So it'll be one day online, one day at school, one day online, one day at school, which alternates and basically cuts the population in half of the school and spreads it out. Out. Most have said that is not the best option for the kids. The best option for the kids is to be in there every day, even with the social distancing as uh, the way it is. Uh, online and one day and at school the next, they say that is not the best option for the kids. No, no, I, th- I think that there are... But in order more... to do what you're saying, that's what they'd have to do. No, but, but more and more people have said, like even, I think uh, this morning, uh, I think 10,000 
kids in Peel decided that they're going to do only online learning, right? So if you take those yeah, kids, it's sitting, it's sitting all the boards. It's basically sitting at about twenty percent. So two out of ten are staying home, basically. Yeah, so two out of ten, and so. But you're right. There's no, there, there's no easy option. I mean, you don't have, you know, triple the number of teachers. We don't have, you know, all this extra. Triple space. the number of schools. Triple the number of schools. But you know, we can look at other non-school places where potentially kids can learn. We looked at all kinds of creative ideas. Like uh, I saw something uh, where they put a screen, like a shower screen, in front of a kid that couldn't wear a mask. And you know, is that something? You know, I'm not saying that at all kids should have, all yeah. should have shower screens, but, you know, if we are doing the best we can do, then that's the best we can do. If there are things that we can do a bit better, you know, if we have more teachers, more space, but just just looking at the options of getting space. And I think you're right. You know, I think for most kids, being in school is is the best option for, for many reasons the structure, but also the socialization, but also some parents need to have kids at school to work. So I think that looking at everything, you know, you're right. It, it's There's no easy answers to this. And, uh, you know, we'll probably make mistakes and move forward. But I think, you know, looking at schools, are there are there better things that we can do? Are there ways of, of having the kids at school full time um, and spacing them out? You know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But I think that if, you know, I think to be creative and look at any options, I think that's important. And, I, you know, I think a lot of the boards are, well, I think all of the boards are doing that just because they've had to uh, out of necessity. Where do you think, and this is an impossible question to answer, doctor, but where do you think we'll be one month from now? I think we're going to have outbreaks in schools. I think uh, some of those outbreaks may end up going to the homes. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully with people, if they get sick, they stay at home. So we're not having wide, uh, wide community spread. I mean, so I think that, and when, when the virus does go through the schools, usually in my experience, what I've observed is that it, it burns through a class, then everyone gets it. Then probably after a while, people will be, the kids will be immune. And then the rest, then you, you sort of carry on. And 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 you just hope that you know when they, the the uh, kids get the virus, if the kids get the virus and it goes home, that there are no vulnerable people at home to that have serious consequences. So you know it's not so much people getting the virus, like the kids getting the virus, it's, it's having bad outcomes related to the virus. And so in the first next few weeks or months, maybe it's not a good time to visit your grandparent right. or. The kids that have someone vulnerable at home, maybe those kids should try to do online learning for the first several weeks or months to see how this plays out. But the the, the thing is, you just want the the numbers to, to to be low, but also the main thing is having people not get very sick with this virus, so to protect those vulnerable people. Uh, what about the flu shot this year, Doctor? Uh, we're hearing it should be out towards the end of this month, beginning of October. Your your recommendations, your thought on this, is this even more important this year than last? Absolutely, because anyone who gets a viral infection will assume to have COVID, and then we'll have to take you know whatever time off school, and parents might need to take time off work. 
Boy, Anna, that's, that's a great that's a great I that's a great point right there. Even if you don't uh, have COVID and you do come down with the flu, it's going to present the same sort of symptoms, which is going to create right. a whole pile of anxiety. That's a very valid point right there. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, no. So, so I think that school-based flu programs would be a very efficient way just to line up the kids, you know, physically distance, of course, and you give them all the vaccine. That is. That is probably, for this year, probably the most efficient way of getting uh, the, the schools immunized because you don't want to have a lot of influenza out there. We may not see as much influenza because kids are hand, uh, using the masks and the hand sanitization, et cetera. And, but I think that uh, everyone who, who can should try to get the vaccine because it's not just to prevent influenza, which kills people itself, but also to prevent the confusion and the chaos that will result if, if people are getting influenza, because they're going to confuse it with, with COVID. Dr. Anna Banerjee has been with us, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. Anna, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity. Take care. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just saw a clip of Trent University in Peterborough uh, over the weekend, and oh my, they're just going mad up there. Uh, just walls and walls of people. And uh, the university's not too happy about that, especially with the publicity they're getting uh, this morning on it. Uh, and of course, that is a concern. Uh, my daughter in first year at university and uh, uh, is attending online and actually drove up today to, to pick up some things that she had to pick up but uh, it'll be interesting to see what her take is on what life is like uh, on campus as they whip in and out but boy uh, again as we're starting to see cases tick up a bit 313 new cases in Ontario today uh, that is the largest increase uh, since June let's bring in Stephanie DeWitt or Associate Professor Health Sciences and Biology under undergraduate advisor Health Sciences Wilfrid Laurier University and is with us now Stephanie thanks for the time hope you're doing well yes thanks for having me so your thoughts as, uh, you know, we're heading back to class and such, university and school, and we're seeing cases up uh, in and around 313, the, the largest increase since uh, June. What are your thoughts? Is this the second wave? Well, I mean, it, it could very well be. Um, I think people just need to be aware anytime you get together, you have a chance of transmitting the virus. So more people getting together more chances of, of contracting this virus. Uh, we've okay. certainly heard... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that uh, I, I tell my virology students, um, viruses don't have legs. So they can't move on their own. We're their legs. And uh, so whenever we move our legs close together, then we're, we're going to transmit that virus. So obviously we're, we're seeing cases on the uptick. Uh, 67% of those new cases are people under 40 uh, being at the university. How concerned are you that, uh, that uh, it's the younger demographics that seem to be uh, certainly two-thirds of this? Well, I, I, again, I think that makes a lot of sense with what's happening right now. Um, I mean, universities, campuses are not opening, but university students are still moving to the to the um, towns where the university is, they're going to get together um, in um, Waterloo, and so you know, walking around close to the campus, there's going to be lots of there are lots of students walking around without masks in large groups, and and they're just they're going to transmit the virus. 
Any idea, and again, I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball here, but any idea at what number we would have to hit of new cases before everyone becomes very, very seriously concerned and we start going backwards? That's a really good question, and that's a public health question. Um, I don't know what that number is. I know everybody's watching the totals very carefully and trends. Um, You know, if you have one day where there's a spike or two or three days because there was a big party and you know where everything's coming from, that's a little bit different than, you know, community-wide general increases. Um, So I think they're going to be watching numbers carefully, the maps carefully to see where they're coming from. Can they track where they're coming from, these new cases? Um, And once it feels like it's not in control, that's probably when they're going to have to pull the plug. Comparing a first wave to a second wave, and let's just assume, say, because we're seeing an uptake in cases, we may be going through that uh, right Mm -hmm. now. Is the second wave or what we're going through now, this, what, 27 weeks in, different than the first four or five weeks of this? Well, you know, it's not it's not going to be the same. We're as a community, as a population, we're more educated. We know what to do. We know what to expect. Uh, we've been practicing. We know about hand sanitizers and masks. So in a, in a way, as long as everybody follows the public health directives, you know, we, we can control this faster. Um, we can look across the globe and see how other countries have handled second waves. It seems very much with this virus, if as a community, everyone follows the rules, everybody protects themselves and others, it can stay under control. As soon as it gets out of control, that's when it truly gets out of control. Numbers go through the roof and normal control measures don't work anymore. So I would just encourage everyone, keep your masks on, wear them, sanitize your hands, be as aware as you were at the beginning. I know when schools open, you feel like, oh, I can relax a little bit. You Hmm. can't. (laughs) <laughs> do you think a lot of this is again you know we uh, through the summer we kept seeing numbers go down and down and people were slowly starting to get out and oh we're gone from stage two to stage three uh do you think obviously we are more out and about now so as you said the more people you come in contact with the more cases you're going to get uh that being said uh we we do seem to be able to manage this so if we all fall for example the kids going back to school everybody knows that how important that is so as these are ticking up the kids are going back to school if we follow the rules if we keep the protocol in place uh that we've been following for you know 27 weeks or such are you confident we can wade our way through this and live uh with a pandemic amongst us without having to retreat well yeah absolutely again the virus is not is not magic you know it, it really is just transmitted between people and if people are responsible they wear their masks they stay two meters apart. Um, the, the real trick is with kids, you know, trying to k- tell kids to stay two meters apart and wear masks. That is a trick. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're doing our best with cohorts, with staggered entry, with, you know, staggered recesses. There's going to be cases in schools. It's going to happen. Um, and and we're, we're just going to have to be prepared for that. It's, it's going to sound scary. Um, a lot of most children who get infected don't get seriously ill so you know it's going to sound scary but it's it's not going to be likely life-threatening for those children but as long as we follow the public health um, guidelines it it really is not a magical thing It, it is literally just trying to keep that virus from not moving to the next person
And I guess if there is positive news in seeing these these numbers uptake, it's it seems to be we seem to be keeping it out of the seniors' homes, out of the long term care centers. That seems to be they don't seem to be going up in those facilities, which is it was a which is obviously a great concern at the beginning of all of this. Absolutely, because that is a population where they are very susceptible to high risk symptoms. Um, so we want to protect those populations in particular. How concerned are you? It's the younger demographics that seem to be most infected, 67% under 40 years of age. Well, that's just what's happening with phase three, right? So um, people who are of working age are um, now going to work as opposed to staying at home and staying separate. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And so those that population that used to be home are now out and about. And so, of course, they're going to get it now. <laughs> yep. So uh, that's so what's are- going to happen. Are you, if again, you can't look, uh, you can't look into a crystal ball here. But one month from now, between now, the ride between here and the new year, what are you expecting? Do you do you think we will continue to see these tick up, or slowly find another manageable higher number? So I think um, we're we're. This is going to be very telling. The next two months is going to be yeah. very telling whether we can keep this under control or not. And that's the choices we're making today are the choices that are going to dictate that. Stephanie DeWitt-Orr has been with us, Associate Professor, Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier. Stephanie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've heard a lot about and talked a lot about September 23rd, which is when the uh, throne speech will be presented. Of course, now Parliament prorogued until September 23rd, when the Prime Minister will uh, unveil a new uh, throne speech, and then it will. Uh, the opposition will either go yay or nay, and yay, we move on. Nay, uh, we are into a fall election. One of the items that uh, many have said, or, or, or the, the, certainly the Prime Minister has alluded to, uh, that there will be a very, very strong green initiative uh, as we uh, plan the recovery and the way out of life in a uh, post-COVID-19 world. Uh, that kind of being scaled back a bit now, and more we're hearing uh, more about uh, universal basic income and the social aspect of this party. One of the items on the docket could be uh, the universal bas- basic income. To talk more about all of this, Floyd Marinsky is with us. He is the founder of UBI Works, that is universal basic income, and is with us now. Floyd, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Why is this a good time to have this discussion, Floyd? Well, we're about to possibly go into a second lockdown. Certain countries around the world, so Israel, for example, has already gone to second lockdown. And frankly, people need to survive. Some people can go back to work. A lot of people can't. And a universal basic income is far better than uh, tweaking unemployment insurance because it'll give people long-term security so they can start now to retrain for better jobs, set, set higher horizons and better goals in life. Many have seen uh, the CERB, which was obviously put in place to help people through the pandemic. Uh, they're scaling that back and now putting those people into the employment uh, income stream. Uh, should that be done, or is this the time to launch this those people into a basic income? Uh, if we had a basic income now, we wouldn't need a uh, tweaked EI system that also satis- uh, serves the needs of the gig economy and people like that who, frankly, weren't paying into it. So h- how are we going to have an EI system where people get the benefit but don't pay into it. So a basic income would solve all of that and give a, a, a large share of Canadians who didn't qualify for EI to begin with 
to continue having a long income security and a long-term perspective to, uh, to retrain for better jobs. So now is absolutely the time. Because if you, think, uh, if you actually look at structurally what EI, how it actually works, including an expanded EI that could serve people in the gig economy, it actually works very much like a basic income. You, know, you, you get some income security for a year. You get to keep 50 cents on the dollar if you start working before the year is out. Most basic income programs work the same way. The only difference is that it would be permanent. And frankly, working, people in working poverty need that raise. And basic income is a raise for working Canadians as much as it is uh, security and a, uh, a bureaucratic free, in some ways cruelty-free alternative to the welfare system. Um, many said this is better in the sense that it just uh, puts a lot of other programs under one umbrella. Will this simplify things moving forward? It, it absolutely could. Of course, the devil's in the details. So, uh, you know, you can envision a national basic income program where the, the cash supports that Canadians get across the spectrum. Uh, it's not only people, for example, on social assistance, even even uh, seniors who have OSGIS. You can imagine the portion under say $2,000 being part of a national program, and then additional income supports or programs that people need, like special disability supports, would be built on top of that. So you could have one program that satisfies the needs of the majority of Canadians, and then you could have specialized programs that serve specific needs uh, where, where needed. Um, one of the complaints, I'll play devil's advocate here now, Floyd, one of the uh, uh, concerns over the CERB where people were staying on that as opposed to going back to work, uh, is that a concern with a basic income that people will rather uh, stay on that than moving forward uh, to try to find employment? What's your reaction? Uh, it is not. So CERB is more like welfare in that you lose it when you go back to work. Basic income, you keep it when you go back to work. You get the best of both worlds. It's It's a raise for working Canadians as much as it is something that helps people that are in poverty to get out of it. Uh, so that is a big difference. You keep it when you go back to work, at least in part, depending on the program design. And how is this an economic opportunity? How is this helping the economy? Well, it's interesting to note that Canada already has a national scale basic income. It's called the Canada Child Benefit. And research mm. has shown that for every dollar invested in the Canada Child Benefit, it generates $2 of GDP growth, and it creates uh, almost 453,000 jobs, about the size of the economy in Nova Scotia. And that, that costs $24 billion a year. And in fact, that same research showed that uh, that generates $85 billion a year in business revenues. So it's good for the economy. People who have less spend a much larger proportion of their income, uh, and, and that money gets spent right back in the Canadian economy. So imagine a program like a basic income that would be several times larger than the Canada Child Benefit. What impact would that have on jobs and growth? We, we absolutely need to have a trickle-up recovery here that puts people first. Like, we didn't have that last time. If we don't do this... This recovery will be worse for working Canadians and worse for the bottom half, just like all previous recoveries have. Is there uh, support for this? It doesn't seem. It seems that, that there's not a lot of known about it. I think there's a lot of unknowns for people, and and they maybe you know just shudder b- between or before they really even get all the details of this. Is there support for this? Is there support from this across party lines? Uh, there is a. Activist support among a number of MPs across all parties. Um, in fact, yeah. one of the most longest-running proponents of basic income in Canada is uh, former Conservative Senator Hugh Siegel. Uh, so mm-hmm. there are MPs in all parties that are for it. Only the Green Party has officially been for it for some time. In fact, all the leadership candidates uh, for their race are all for it. Uh, but just recently, the uh, Liberal Caucus uh, placed university, uh, universal basic income as their number one policy priority, uh, which hopefully will, will amount to something, because last time I was in the platform, too, and uh, that doesn't seem to change anything. But but I think uh, there are more MPs. There's a greater chorus of support now across party lines, including in the NDP, including conservatives that are, are for basic income. 
what are the cons? What are you what are you hearing for resistance? What are people saying that you know this isn't going to work, and here's why? Well, a lot of people talk about it's too expensive, but in fact, uh, a base income that is modeled after the Ontario pilot, what was tried here in Ontario, would only cost a three percent GST increase at most. And it, in fact, if you factor in economic growth, it would probably cost significantly, significantly less than that because that report on the Canada Child Benefit showed that for every dollar invested uh, going to work, going to families, uh, fifty-five cents came back as new government revenues uh, because of all the all the money that was put into circulation. Uh, other people are concerned about inflation. And I like to remind listeners that inflation is more a factor of supply and demand of goods and services than anything else. And I don't think China and uh, Amazon and Walmart can scale to meet our needs. Uh, We haven't had problems with the supply. Even during COVID, we haven't had major problems with the supply of food and basic goods that people buy. Um, And uh, then the other big uh, elephant in the room is, will people work? Well, of course they'll work. There's already been 15 experiments in the last 50 years where 105,000 people have, have been in clinical styles, uh, clinical trials, and they've worked. And if anything, I think CERB is showing uh, people's lived experience. Millions of people uh, want to go back to work, and they're experiencing a cash transfer system now. And uh, I think uh, most people, if you ask them, are not going to say, I'd rather not work for, for 2000 a month. Hmm. Floyd Marinescu has been with us, founder of UBI Works, uh, Universal Basic Income. Floyd, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Where do you see this discussion before we leave? Where do you see this discussion in the next six months? Is this a reality? Could you see this happening this year? Uh, wow. Well, I've always believed that something as, as bold as basic income requires an election mandate. So if it's not in the throne speech, and who knows, right? Like There could be an election called uh, perhaps any time between now and early next year then I hope that one party is bold enough to get there. And uh, UBI Works is going to do whatever we can to try. We have, a, we have a proposal. It's called Recovery UBI. You can see it at ubiworks.ca slash recovery. We show eight ways to pay for it, to give you $2,000 a month as an income guarantee and a $500 a month dividend. And we're going to try our best to, to make this uh, a reality across party lines. Floyd Marinescu has been with us, founder of UBI Works, uh, Universal Basic Income. Floyd, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great, thank you. Uh, lots of chatter about a basic income, yeah. especially during this pandemic, and as uh, obviously these programs uh, uh, are, are slowly discontinued and people are starting to go on to EI and such. What are your thoughts on basic income? Is, is this a solution? Is this a valid solution? Uh, I'm going to say yes, but... What I worry about is I, I don't think we should necessarily rush right into it. If I can just take you back a couple of years ago, Ontario, under Kathleen Wynne, said, let's, let's do a pilot project. And 4,000 people were put on this. They were supposed to be on this for two years. And let's measure. Let's measure what the costs are. Let's measure if there's any long-term savings. Let's try to figure out any other benefits that are out there. And unfortunately, that pilot was canceled. And and I really think before we try to do something for a population of 38 million people, it'd be nice if we had just a little more empirical data. Now, I know that the Liberal Party, uh, or excuse me, the Liberal Cabinet under Justin Trudeau has been meeting, and I also know that they have made uh, examination of a pilot income program like this an important uh, aspect they're taking to their national convention in November. I suspect if we hear anything about it in the throne speech next week, it is that it's going to be examined and looked at, but I don't think you're going to see any implementation timeline. This is a major change in policy from one of the largest economies out there, and I just don't think you can rush into it. 
is it more or could it be more efficient just because you're you're putting a lot of this under one umbrella instead of all of these other blanket agencies? Absolutely, absolutely. So if I can again take you back a couple years ago, the, the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office studied this, and while they came up with a cost of the program at around $75 billion a year, they said, well, that's the cost of the program, then there's savings from eliminating all these other things. So we would get rid of the Ontario Disability Support Program, we would get rid of uh, welfare programs, and we would migrate to this kind of get rid of some of the uh, employment insurance programs, and we would migrate to this program, and they figured the cost savings were on the order of $33 billion. Now that left a difference of $42, $43 billion a year. Goodness, you know, in a budget, in an annual budget of around $340 billion for the Canadian government, $40 billion is a lot of money. But they also said the, the uh, proponents of this claim that there could be health cost savings, there could be mental, uh, mental health savings as well, addiction savings. And those soft savings are the ones that we'd really like to get a handle on. It may very well turn out to be that uh, this program could be implemented without a significant increase in cost, but we don't have empirical data to know that. Uh, It seems to be getting more attention from people across party lines as well. Well, I think that's in part because we we implemented something like a guaranteed income program or a universal basic income program under under or under um, under the pandemic. Let's get the right pandemic here, Marvin. Under COVID nineteen, not SARS. Hmm. And um, uh, this program is probably the, the one that we had for the CERB a little richer than was initially planned. People could get five hundred dollars a week or two thousand dollars a month. The Ontario pilot program gave individuals around $17,000 a year. It did give families 24000 2000 a month, but you had to be married and have dependents, those sorts of things. So it's probably just a little richer, and it was amazing how fast it was able to come together. Um, we're still waiting again to see the results of that. It does seem that a lot of people... Uh, were saved during the pandemic from financial ruin. That some of the some of the concerns about bankruptcies or liquidation or people failing on their debts, none of that came to fruition. But we're still trying to sort out: was there fraud? Uh, are we going to get that money back? What are the criteria you would use? Um, and so I think for a fast, a very quickly implemented program, a very fast program, it did very well. But I think we need to study something like this just a little bit more before we implement it. Uh, many were concerned that uh, people were staying on the CERB and not right. going back to work. Uh, is there a chance of that with uh, a, a basic income? Yeah. So, or is you know, that wrong to assume everyone you know is like that and everybody eventually wants to work and, and lift themselves out? Right. Well, this is one of the cons that gets suggested to a basic income program, that, that people are going to say, well, then I can just sit around and do nothing and yeah. I'm going to collect... 17000 or $18,000 a year, why would I want to work? And I, would that be the case for some people? I, I, I'd say absolutely. There's no 100% one way or 100% another way on this. Um, others also argue that there are some causes of poverty, like mental illness and addiction. Just because you put money in their hands doesn't necessarily mean that's going to overcome those things. So I don't think it's also a silver bullet. I don't think anyone should look at this as a silver bullet. There are costs involved, and we would want to make sure that there is some um, 
uh, maybe lack of a better term, I want to use the word penalty, but maybe that's not quite the right word, uh, a discipline into how do you use this program. But uh, a, a, a true pilot program would allow us to see this. Here in Hamilton, there were people who took this money, and on the plus side of it, because they weren't worried about making ends meet, they were able to go back, get some education, perhaps finish high school if they had dropped out, perhaps go to college, start an, uh, an internship program or an apprenticeship program to try to drag themselves up out of poverty, and they just weren't worried about chasing the, the last dollar to try to pay for rent or to pay for the food on their table. That's the positive argument. I get the other argument. You know, I don't want to pay people to sit around and do nothing. But, uh, you know, until we actually see what that percentage rate might be in a pilot, I, I wouldn't want to estimate it. And you don't think we're going to hear, although we may hear lots about this during the throne speech, there's not going to be a lot of implement. Uh, implement right. in, we won't be implicated. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There we won't be. We won't be. Timeline on yes. Either. Thank you, Marvin. No for problem. That. We're all a little. You're confusing. You're days. confusing the pandemics. I can't get the words out. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah, the, how will that? I think the throne speech. Uh, is, is going to be full of lots and lots and lots of positive statements, you know, brave new world, new normal, you know, we're going to appreciate each other and be better and those sorts of things. The throne speeches are famous for that kind of language. And I think um, on the off chance, and I don't think it's a high chance, but on the off chance there is an election called this fall, or forced this fall perhaps because of a confidence motion fed by the um, Bloc Québécois, or maybe the NDP or the Conservatives, I think Justin would like to be on the record saying, I want to study this, I haven't written it off. But I also don't think he's going to say, look, we're going to have this for January 1st, 2021. There's just not enough time to do that, while at the same time trying to rebuild the economy after, after COVID-19. And again, I understand it. Proponents will say, well, this could be a building block. And yes, I suppose it could, but because it is such a fundamental change in policy, I, I just think we need to do it well. We could do it perhaps by January 1st, 2022, or even by January 1st, 2023. I just don't think this is something you can do in less than three months and have it ready for a rollout on January 1st, 2021. Uh, that being said, uh, this and uh, greening the economy promised in the throne speech, mm -hmm. could you say the same for that? Yeah, exactly. Well, greening the economy is, again, a rather easy thing to say. We're going to try to lessen our dependence on fossil fuels. We're going to be open to new technology, whether it's solar or wind or, or uh, geothermal from the ground. Uh, we're going to try to invest in companies trying to develop these technologies for the world. Those are all really wonderful things to say and, and relatively easy to do in the sense of being supportive. Now, how many dollars, how fast? Um, Again, I know uh, proponents who would like to see a switch off fossil fuels tomorrow. I just don't think you can turn the light switch that quickly. I can see it done over a 10-year, 20-year, 25-year period. And so we can say all the right things and lay all the foundational tools. I just don't think this is something you're going to see implemented in, in six months or eight months or nine months. In other words, I think what's going to help drive the recovery is, is still the basic businesses that were here before the recovery. and We want to make sure those are healthy. Uh, yes, maybe we'll be driving a little less in this new economy. Maybe we'll be doing more work from home and commuting less. But if, if you really change it up altogether, there are other costs and consequences. Uh, we've talked before about some of the problems facing Tim Hortons out there. Tim Hortons is very much a company that supports a grab-and-go 
uh, economy, if you will, people who are commuting here, commuting there, grabbing a double-double, their sales were down 29% in the second quarter of this year because we weren't grabbing and we weren't going. If this is the new normal, Tim Horton should shut half their locations. I don't think it's the new normal, but it may give you a sense of what the world looks like in 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, we've, we've certainly heard both uh, Christia Freeland and the Prime Minister say they're going to build back better to, to borrow a line from the Democrats down south. Yep. Uh, the question is, can we afford to switch our economy now to a green economy, or is this the right time to do it? Well, again, the word switch. I think we can evolve. I think I prefer the word evolve yeah. the economy. It's not flicking a light. So will we see more pipelines? Will we hear more pipelines being built to help get us out of this? Um Maybe not more, but complete the ones that were on there. Again, I think the Trans Mountain Pipeline is one that's, that's needed. I saw an angry note the other day from someone on Facebook who said, why are we buying oil from Saudi Arabia because we got all this Canadian oil? And the easy answer is it's all trapped in Alberta. Unless we can get that oil to where the refineries are in the east and the west, it's of very little use to us. So I think you might still see a pipeline or two or even three built but the days of that being the key project, I think, are starting to fall behind us. And likewise, I think if you look at Tesla's expansion, batteries, trying to get better batteries to store more energy, to increase the distance you can drive in a car, making sure that those electric cars are part of Canada's future. You know, in the uh, 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 United Auto Workers, and that's not the right word for them now, Unifor, as they have targeted Ford for the first negotiation in Canada, one of the things they're asking Ford is to make sure that electric cars are being built in Canada that battery technology is being developed in Canada. And I think that's a sign of greening the economy. I don't know how fast. Last year, less than 3% of the cars we bought were electric. 97% were still gas. But 3% is really quite a lot compared to a year or two before that when it was zero. So how fast is it going to change? And I, I just think we need to be part of that evolution as it goes. Um, there's, is there a lot of pressure on the government to deliver this throne speech? It seems because, uh, you know, it could trigger an election during a pandemic when not two people want to go to the polls. Uh, there's lots of other things going back to school and such. Um, or is, there, is, there, is there too much pressure being put on this September 23rd uh, throne speech? You know, if it doesn't knock it out of the park, will people be disappointed? Well, yes, in part. But look, the government created this on their own accord. Normally, every March, the federal government and the provincial governments come down with their budgets for the year ahead, and we never got a budget. Instead, we got a crisis. That was the pandemic. And we have managed through this crisis, but I think a lot of people now are saying, where are we going? I I get it. We wanted to flatten the curve. I get it that we were trying to keep ourselves safe. But where, where are we going? And so this need for a throne speech to lay out a plan, are we still going to borrow $300 million next year? I think the answer to that is no. So then what are what is the plan for the rest of this year in 2021? Uh, we, we'd really need to know. Ontario, bless their hearts, did come down with a budget. Now they've had to substantially revise what was in their budget, but they've given us a sense of their thinking. The federal government has not, and especially with a new finance minister, we could have argued with the old finance minister, well, I could kind of figure out what Bill Morneau was going to do. I could extrapolate from his past decisions. But we have a new finance minister. I, I think we do need to lay out some kind of a roadmap so people know where are we going over the next six months to a year. Uh, I don't think it's about borrowing $300 billion, but 
But what is it? Is it infrastructure? As you pointed out, is it green energy? Uh, is it the guaranteed income program? I don't know. I'd really love to hear your thoughts, Prime Minister, and then I'd love to have a national debate on where do we go through all this, and I think that's what this sets up. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be with you today. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.